Okay, friends. Hello, hello. It is such a gift to be here with you guys today on this very blustery day. I'm kind of impressed how many people came to church today. I thought 26 degrees, Vox is not coming today. I'm just going to be hanging out with like Way. So well done, friends. Well done. You made it. I hope your new year is off to a great start. Maybe your resolutions are going great. Maybe you've abandoned some already. They were overly ambitious. But this is the time of year that we tend to think about last year and how it went and what our intentions are for the new year. It's arbitrary, I know. We don't magically wake up differently on January 1st. We wake up in the same body in roughly the same circumstances. But it's natural as the counter flips to a new year to consider our behaviors, patterns, obstacles, accomplishments. What will you do with your life this year? Will you continue with the same set of hopes and behaviors or do you want to make a change? And of course the Bible has a lot to say about the choices that we make. And since this one book is actually a collection of works from many authors who wrote over many, many years, a couple thousand years ago, the advice sometimes feels, well, clear as mud, as they say. But as confusing as it may be for us, this was especially true for the early Christians who were navigating a brand new faith journey against the backdrop of Judaism and polytheism of the day. And the city of Corinth made this extra challenging. A port city, Corinth was a loud and boisterous metropolis. And not unlike Chicago or New York, there were boroughs of people from all sorts of places. They brought their religion with them, and they had different customs around food, sex, marriage, worship. While there were Jewish people in Corinth, there were also some really powerful Roman cults with their very own entrenched practices of worship. You may remember that Paul actually addresses this in Athens, noticing that they have a God for everything, including a shrine for an unknown God just to be safe. So in this day and age, people were spiritual, but many of them were comfortable worshiping a variety of gods. So if you didn't like what one deity said, you could just try another one. To quote my husband Ben, people were farming out their decisions to whoever had the best parties. And by parties, I mean, and I'll just let you finish that sentence. I don't want to face the wrath of way. None of us has ever seen the wrath of way, but I'm certain it's in there somewhere, and I do not want to personally discover it. Anyway, the Temple of Diana was a pretty big deal in Corinth. And people worshipped there when they needed wisdom, because the different gods had different purposes. So if you really wanted to connect to Diana you would visit with the temple prostitute. And afterwards, participants supposedly experienced some postcoital clarity, wisdom. Turns out some of the new converts to this way of Jesus were not super keen to give up this spiritual practice. Now, Paul isn't with them at the time, but he has heard some things in 5.1, he names one of the things that he's heard, and if I know religious communities, he's heard about this one from quite a few people. He says, 
it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the sort of sexual immorality that is not found even among Gentiles, for a man is living with his father's wife. Let's hope it's his stepmother, at least. They've written to Paul because they have some questions. We know this because he follows up our passage in chapter 7, verse 1, by saying, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he's getting ready to address their questions and concerns when he writes that the body is not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Before we really dig into this passage together, I want to acknowledge that there is pain in this room that wells up when we read the phrase sexual immorality. There is scar tissue, and there are some open wounds. And perhaps when Thomas read this passage earlier, you experienced a sort of internal recoil. So let's take a moment to acknowledge the way that your system reacts when we wade into this particular scripture. Where do you feel it in your body? Can you breathe into that sensation and hold space for it with kindness and tenderness? God of comfort, help us breathe through discomfort. Because in spite of our discomfort, we have to contend with these hard passages. We could do what many churches do about one passage or another that they don't much enjoy. We could cherry pick the verses around it. And it's the equivalent of scrunching your eyes closed real hard and covering your ears and yelling la 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 on the playground. Or we can roll up our sleeves, take a big breath, and ask the Holy Spirit, what should we take from this? A couple of notes before we do, though. First, I just want to remind you that I'm up here sharing my thoughts as I contend with this passage. You do not have to agree with me. I'm simply asking you to come along on this journey for a few minutes, and then you get to weigh these ideas and either embrace them or release them. And either way, you belong here. And second, this passage has, and therefore this homily will have, some adult content. So if you have children with you this morning that have opted out of Greenhouse, I cannot promise that you won't be answering awkward questions on your way home. So if you choose to take a little walk at any point, I will not be offended. And finally, Romans 8.1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there will be no condemnation in this homily. So if you're holding your breath, go ahead and exhale. And we'll dig in. Our text says, all things are permitted for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are permitted for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What does Paul mean when he says, all things are permitted? Spoiler alert, throughout this letter, he will write at length about what the church should not permit. So this could feel like a bit of a trap. In some translations, this verse says all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. 
Keep in mind that Paul was a Pharisee named Saul before he met Jesus, and he grew up within the traditions of the Judaic law. The law was a series of rules that kept you in God's good graces. They kept you in community. These days, especially in many churches, we often think of religious rules in terms of eternity. Be a good person, get into heaven. But in Jewish culture, eternity was not actually a central theme for morality. In fact, a huge point of contention between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was whether or not life after death even existed. But either way, the law was less about the afterlife and more about the present, whether God would bless Israel and the future, what you were sowing for future generations, community and legacy this side of heaven. So why be a good person according to the law? And what happens if you're not? Well, the real danger was that you would be cast out of the temple and the community. Because according to Jewish theology, God would punish the whole nation for the wrong actions of just one person. In Joshua 7, we learn the story of Israel's battle against Ai. Israel was making its way into the promised land, riding high on their victory over Jericho, and thought that this battle would be easy peasy. And then it wasn't. You see, they'd been told not to take certain objects as the spoils of war, but one of the soldiers pocketed a few of those items for himself and buried them in the dirt under his tent. So instead of the easy victory they were expecting, there was this humiliating defeat. And God was so displeased with Israel that he was not supportive of them. And then he helped Joshua identify the culprit through a series of steps, and they gathered up his whole family and stoned them to death outside their encampment, and then burned the bodies with all of their belongings. And then Israel went back to winning battles. This is the kind of story that motivated the Jewish people to follow the law, to protect their community and their place in community. So through the law, we have a how-to guide for maintaining belonging in community and blessing for that community. Belonging and favor are earned through right action. Now the problem with the law is that no one can keep it. We hear about this in Romans chapter seven when Paul says, I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched person am I who will rescue me from this body of death. Paul is having a little moment here. <laughs> and it's a bummer because Paul is kind of a big deal. And he can't win this law game. Keep screwing it up. In Jewish culture, there was a fix for this. The sacrificial system made a bad choice or even a mistake. Through religious ritual, you could put your sins onto an animal and then kill it. That's where we get the phrase scapegoat from. Romans chapter 7 is a real downer if you stop reading there. But if you continue just one verse into chapter 8, you get to the big tada. It's the answer to the conundrum of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We can't win at this law game, so thank God for Jesus. 
Jesus says it is finished. He steps into the sacrificial system and ends it. On the cross, he rescues us from condemnation and he locks in our belonging. So with the law, our belonging was in question, but now because of the cross, our belonging is secure. Where the law gave us a way to earn belonging, grace gives us something better. We will no longer have to earn our way into community with God in eternity or in this life. So when Paul says everything is lawful, I believe this is what he means. We have freedom in Christ and our belonging is secure. But if that's true, does it even matter what I do? If my choices won't affect my belonging, does that mean everything goes? Freedom in Christ, baby, let's go. Well, yes and no. Because everyone belongs, but not everyone is thriving. The law is about belonging, but the kingdom is about good news. Jesus rarely talked about eternity during his time on earth, but he constantly talked about the kingdom of heaven that was coming near. Goodness is not just for eternity. It's for now. It's for today. It's for this morning at Vesper. It's for this neighborhood in East Austin. We have access to it right now. We can experience it, and we can sow the seeds of it. Everything is lawful, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is lawful, but some of it makes us sick, and that sickness spreads. Everything is lawful, but violence is, raging, is ravaging whole communities. Everything is lawful, but some of us have enough, while some of us are destitute. And we read in Romans 12 that we are members of one another. So we also have to ask, yes, some of us are thriving, but is the community thriving? Is the whole body of Christ thriving? No. Why not? Because not everything is beneficial. Now, Paul was highly educated, and he builds precept upon precept. So it's important to pay attention to how he frames things. He's sharing this principle first and then building the next idea right on top of it, and then the next. So this idea, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial, is like a decoder ring for this text. And with it, we can begin to flesh out how we discern what is beneficial. He says, all things are permitted for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So we turn the ring a little bit and we get another piece of discernment. If something is controlling me, if it's mastering me, then it is not beneficial for me. It's easy in the context of community to make a long list of do's and don'ts, which is basically what the Jewish religious leaders did as they canonized their interpretations of the law and made them expectations for community. And a few months ago, we talked about how these interpretations were called a yoke and how Jesus took on the religious leaders and took them to task for how, they, how heavy they made that yoke for people. But we don't only see it in religious communities. We see it to varying degrees all over the place. From the workplace, the workday ends at five. To my HOA, good neighbors weed their gardens. To the school cafeteria, on Wednesdays we wear pink. <laughs> to move beyond a legalistic yoke, we have to be willing to make decisions differently. So let me give you an example. I have family members who are in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. 
For them, spending a lot of time in bars is not beneficial. It's not where they are going to thrive. So as a religious leader, I could stand up here and say, no one should ever go to a bar. In fact, if you do, you're probably dangerous and you can't be part of our community anymore. But the reality is that for many people, a good bar is a place for social connection. It can provide a warm place when you're traveling in the cold, literally or metaphorically. It's a place where you might meet someone who becomes your spouse or your best friend. It may be a place where you discover your favorite band. Where legalism might say bars are evil and no one is allowed to go to them ever, discernment might say, is going out tonight beneficial for me? Does drinking dominate me? Maybe the question is, do I feel more lonely or less lonely in this place? Or do I have enough money to buy a drink and tip my bartender? Because sidebar, if you go out eating and drinking and then you don't tip well, then you are not being good news to your server. Where legalism asks, is this allowed? Discernment asks, is this beneficial? So if you're following along, you may be noticing that discernment is a much blurrier, much more time-intensive process than legalism. When someone asks you, want to grab a drink with me tonight at Lester Pearl? And legalism says, no, that's evil. You are done thinking. But if you have to work through a discerning process weighing pros and cons and your answer today might be different than it was yesterday, there's more mental and even spiritual load. And there's a greater chance of getting it wrong. Have you ever gone out with some friends and once you got there you thought, I should not be in this bar? Just me? Cool, cool, cool. So obviously, this is a principle that applies to a lot of things. What we eat, how we socialize, how we stay healthy, who we befriend. So let's just pause here and reflect. As you consider the work of being human, can you begin to prayerfully ask God, is this beneficial or is this destructive in some way? Now, to understand where Paul takes this next, it's helpful to remember what we know about the city of Corinth. Because it is a polytheistic melting pot city, a lot of interesting things are being mixed into the teachings of the church. These new believers have a lot of freedom, especially for those who have left Judaic law behind, and not everything they are doing with that freedom is helpful to them or to community. In some ways, these converts are kind of like college freshmen, you move out of your parents' house and into a dorm, and suddenly, everything is lawful. Your parents aren't there enforcing the rules, making sure you eat nourishing food or get to bed on time or don't have boys in your room. You can do what you want, and you do. Hopefully, by sophomore year, you start to realize that while you have all this freedom to do what you want, not everything is beneficial. For example, I noticed that staying up all night and going straight to your 8 a.m. calculus class without sleeping will make it nearly impossible to learn about derivatives and land you with a scholarship-threatening, barely-passing grade. So anyway, let's just say that these new believers in Corinth are making some messes. And Paul is writing to clarify a few things. And because this environment is full of temple rituals that involved food and sex, he's referencing those things here. He's, um, he sort of breezes past the questions about food in this section. 
although he does spend more time on that in other places in other letters. But basically says the stomach is for food, don't get too caught up here. But he is hearing some things that worry him when it comes to sex. And we look at what he is saying here. Let's use our decoder ring. He is guiding them around what is beneficial and why. So if we use that as our decoder ring, we can notice a few things here. As we read this verse, the body is meant for sexual is not is meant not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. I want us to notice right off the bat what he is not saying. This verse does not say that the body is bad. In fact, it says the Lord is for it. In verse 15, he says, "Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ?" Which begs the question, do you know that your body is a member of Christ? Because there is a time that I didn't. I felt like if you were a good Christian, your body was irrelevant, and I was pretty sure it might be the problem, <laughs> a distraction at best. But this passage says that our bodies are meaningful and important, and I dare say part of our spiritual experience. In verse 19, he says, "Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit." Therefore, what we do with our bodies and how we care for them and honor them does matter. This verse also doesn't say that the body is not for sex. I'd argue that it's not only for sex, but it's not not for sex. I invite you to notice with me how often the church has used this verse and verses like it to create shame and fear around sex itself. But Paul is talking about sexual immorality here, and if you can be immoral around sex, then you can be moral about it, right? Let's also notice that he follows this statement with a specific example. And I'm guessing it doesn't quite match up with the yoke of sexual morality that springs to mind for you. Chances are when you think of sexual immorality, you immediately conjure a list of bad, impermissible things, but the reality is more nuanced here. When we look through this decoder ring to discern what is beneficial and what is destructive, the sexual example he offers is about prostitution. Why is this where he goes? Seems like he skipped right past a few other things. I think he goes here because some of the new Christians in Corinth are trying to bring this cult of Diana temple practice into the way of Jesus. And Paul is saying, "Hold up. This is a bad plan." And then the next thing he does might surprise you because he humanizes the prostitute. He says, "Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for it is said the two shall be one flesh." He does not allow this prostitute to be seen as an object for purchase or a means to an end. God did not design sex as a transaction or a purchase to be taken lightly, but as a celebration of connection and commitment. Why do I think this? Because he's quoting scripture here. The two will become one flesh. This is language about marriage. He's saying this person that you barely see is a human being designed by a God who loves them and to use them as a tool for your own needs alone. to blatantly disregard their humanity is violence. The Greek word translated as sexual immorality in this passage is porneia, which has the same root as our word pornography. 
The classic definition of the word involves selling access to your body. But over time, its meaning has broadened to refer to any sexual activity that casually disregards the humanity of the participants. I invite you to notice with me how many things the church has piled into the concept of sexual immorality that don't quite line up with what Paul is referencing here. I specifically want to address my LGBTQ friends and family here this morning and say that if your love honors the humanity of your partner, then that is not what Paul is addressing in this passage. And I'm sorry for every way that the church has used passages like this and twisted them in ways that have caused you harm. In actuality, this passage is not referencing any of the typical talking points that focus on the family might espouse. Monogamy, homosexuality, gender identity, premarital sex. But using our decoder ring, we can ask some key questions as we make decisions about how we express our God-given sexuality. We can ask, is this beneficial? Is it dominating my life? Is it dehumanizing? And as we are discerning in this tricky area, I think it's worth noting that the Greek approach to sexuality at this time did not necessarily mirror our cultural mores. In Greek households, monogamy was not the standard, and there's decent evidence that heterosexuality wasn't either. People, especially men, had multiple partners, and they were generally part of the same household, a closed system. When one person went outside the household, though, say, to a temple prostitute, they inherently brought in other energies and other risks. Not only relational risks of hurt feelings and trauma, but literal safety risks like STIs and violence. And it turns out that that is not beneficial. Some of you know that we have an adopted daughter and a son-in-law and four grandkids in Chicago. It's a long story if you don't know it. She became part of our family after her mom died. And the story of how that happened is very hard. You see, her dad left when she and her siblings were very young. But when she was in middle school, he came home and reconnected with her mom. He moved in to live with them, but it only lasted a few weeks. They came home one day, and he had stolen everything of value and disappeared. But within the year, he died of AIDS. And that is how they found out that in those short weeks of reconnection, he'd transmitted HIV to her mom. And she died a few years later. His choices didn't just hurt her feelings, they orphaned four children. So yes, there are some guardrails around sex in this verse, but it's not because God hates sex or fun. It's because God wants us free and whole and thriving. Sometimes what feels great for a moment causes devastating ripple effects. There is so much permission to experience your sexuality in beneficial ways playing out in this passage. Ways that honor the personhood of yourself and your partner. Ways that are beneficial to your family and community. But also, we need to be careful not to run around causing harm. If our sexuality is not dominating us, then love can be the guiding principle. So let's pause here and reflect. What stories and beliefs did you inherit around sexuality? And a hard question, 
Are you open to the Holy Spirit's guidance as you discern how you express and experience this aspect of your life? For a lot of people in this room, this is not a prayer. You don't pray about this subject. <laughs> we don't talk to God about this one. But we can, because he is for the body. Shall we be done talking about sex in church for today? Let's step back from the specifics of this passage and talk about one more element of discernment that we can see in this text if we're paying attention. And that is that community is a vital part of discernment. We see this referenced in the verses themselves. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ and that you are not your own? Each believer is part of the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Christ on earth. And when we say that, we are talking about Christian community. We are talking about Big C Church. You may know that the word often used for church in the New Testament is ecclesia. But did you know that that word itself predates the early church? It was originally used in Greek and Roman culture long before Jesus, the way of Jesus was a thing. Um, it was used to refer to a gathering of citizens to discuss philosophy and policy. Now, in Roman culture, these citizens were men, but in the ecclesia, we all get to come. Communal discernment is really baked into the word ecclesia. While we've come to see the church more as a show that we view or wisdom from an expert that we receive, this was not the design for the church community. The book of the Bible, this book of the Bible, is actually a letter, part of an ongoing conversation around how to live as Christians. Paul is writing to a community that is trying to practice the way of Jesus together. And on any given day, they are hearing from the cult of Diana, they are hearing from the Jews, they are hearing from their neighbors. People have a lot of opinions about what they should be doing. So they've written to their teacher with some questions. Now, we don't know exactly what they wrote. We don't have that letter. But perhaps they talked about the relational drama that was affecting the community with this situation with the guy. Or maybe they were legitimately wrestling. Is this OK? It doesn't feel beneficial, but maybe that's just how my Jewish family did things. And now, you know, freedom in Christ. As we live our lives, practice our resolutions, make our big and small choices, it is sometimes hard to see the forest for the trees. And that is one of the many reasons why it's not great to do life alone with only your hopes and rationalizations to guide you. We were designed for community, and our community can challenge our thinking when we're out of alignment and encourage us when we need affirmation. And it is not just about our community helping us discern. It's also about our contributions in community, too, because we are not our own. All things are lawful, but not everything will be beneficial and feel good for your community. Not everything will honor the place that you hold. Not everything will express your redemption or point towards good news. And so it makes sense to consider our choices beyond the vacuum of individualism with confidence that what we do matters as part of an integrated system, that we are members of one body and that we want that body to thrive. So let's reflect just one more time. And as you consider your choices in the year ahead, how can you lean into community as you discern right action for your life? And if we are members of one another, how is your life helping your community to thrive? 
Now, as you're considering discernment and community, you may feel very integrated into the communal fabric here at Vox, or you may have walked in this morning still feeling a little disconnected. If today is your first time here at Vox, apologies, this one's a doozy, <laughs> but welcome. <laughs> One of the ways that we practice community here at Vox is via our midweek groups. And right now, we have nine groups meeting up in various areas of the city, and they likely function in nine very different ways. We let each group discern what is beneficial for them. Ah, see what I did there? But once a year, we try to unite our groups in a common book study. Last year, midweek group book clubs read our very own Jenna St. David's book, The Brain and the Spirit. And many people who weren't in a group yet teamed up for a season to read along. Some of those groups enjoyed that experience and then parted ways, and some of them decided to stay together as midweek groups ongoing. And either way, it's a great way to dip your toe into community. And it's that time again. So this spring, we have chosen Cole Arthur Riley's This Here Flesh. We're going to be sharing more information in the weeks to come, and we would love to have you join us in this adventure, whether or not you are currently part of a midweek group. To make space for more people to join, we will need a few more groups. So if you'd be open to facilitating a group this spring, I would love to talk to you. You could find me or Wei, or you could email us. Um, at, I think it's midweek at boxvenier.com. And if you're open to facilitating a group, we would love for you to join us at our midweek group coordinators retreat, which is on January 27th at our house. It's in Southeast Austin. It's not too long to drive. It's going to be a fun day. It would give you a chance to connect with other midweek group leaders and the skinny on how we're going to be supporting these book clubs, which will be easy, easy for you to, to do. So get the conversation started by sending us an email. If you are like, wow, I do not have capacity to facilitate a group, but I sure would like to be a part of that, then we are having a midweek group night on the 31st tip for connection. So you could meet some of the people potentially who are starting new groups or some of the group leaders who have room in their groups. So thank you for letting me have that little PSA at the end. Um, but I do hope that you'll join us in community, that you'll double down as we, as we step into this Vox-wide book club. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, as we navigate this year, be near to us. Give us clear vision so that we and our communities may thrive. Amen. <laughs>